0: Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive.
1: The reading this morning is taken from the book of Revelations, chapter 1, verses 1-8. to The Revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the provinces of Acha, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits from his th- before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power for forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ian.
0: Well, that's more names than perhaps I needed, but uh, Jonathan William Llewellyn Hughes is my name. Each one has a meaning. My favorite is Llewellyn. Well, actually, Llewellyn and Hughes. Llewellyn means either leader or like a lion, which is, so be afraid. (coughs) And Hughes means son of fire. So that's pretty cool, isn't it? Uh, And it's also pretty cool that uh, I am now, or I'm not actually now, I will be soon, uh, the vicar also. Of, of St Andrews, and that means a new future for St Andrews and a new future for Trinity. And we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but for us, it's it's a moment of of hope, I think, and possibility, as we join our story to this 150-year story of St Andrews, this story of prayer, of worship, of faithfulness, and a, a particular position, I think, in a in a part of the city. Uh, where we don't just look, uh, you know, we've had this vision of uh, water filling the temple and, and leaving this temple and flowing down into the city. This is an Ezekiel 47 vision. And gravity from this place would take that water into, into the center of the city. But if it flows out of St. Andrew's, gravity would take it both ways, uh, to the north and to the south. So I think there's something spiritual for us there, and that will uh, become clear, I'm sure, in time to come. So that's that. More to come on that. Uh, secondly, and uh, perhaps uh, most pertinently for this morning, we're beginning a new series this morning called Discipleship on the Edge. And we have a visual for that, which is very exciting. This is a series in Revelation. It is going to take us some time, some weeks. We know no, not yet how many weeks, but it will be some weeks. And uh, the, the phrase comes from a book of the same name, Discipleship on the Edge, by a guy called Daryl Johnson. If you are a reader uh, and you would like to pick up a book that's going to help you journey through Revelation, it is the best thing I've read for a number of years as a commentary on Scripture, and I would encourage you to look at that. It's cheaper on Kindle, so I'm looking out for you there. So let's uh, praise. we begin this journey into this book, which has been so important for the church, but at times inaccessible for many. Lord Jesus, this book's about you. This church is about you. Our times are in your hand. You are so near this morning. Draw nearer still as we open your word, as we hear your word preached. Just as the reformers believed that the, the preached word was The word of God, so may your preached word this morning. Do what your word, your living word, Jesus does. Bring life, hope, new possibility, even resurrection. And I even say, Lord, let it bring healing. Healing to bodies and, and fractured minds and burnt out souls. Let it be so, not just in this place, but in St. Andrews. Let it be so in the Church of England across this city and the whole church across this city this morning. Bring life by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, you may have recently seen some of the data from the UK census, recent census taken in 2021, which suggested that those who identify as Christian are in rapid decline in our nation. On census day, 21st of March 2021, 46.2% of those people who were surveyed identified as Christians, compared with 593 in the 2011 census. So that's a 13% point dip in a decade, which amounts to some 5.5 million people. These numbers, we are told, or led to believe, are an indication of the decline in Christian faith in the West, uh, a, a part of a larger trend, we're told, which I think Nietzsche first, oh, maybe not first, but certainly talked about when he said that God is dead. Now, certainly we have seen a shift In church attendance. You know, some have not returned post-pandemic. I I do think that if you were not all in pre-pandemic, then it has been really quite easy to tap out. That's certainly not been the story, largely speaking, here at Trinity Church, I don't think. We've actually seen growth in in the numbers of people uh, calling this place home, and we've seen all kinds of exciting growth within that growth, We are a far more socially and racially diverse church than we've ever been. We have far more people of color who call this place home. And we also have a growing contingent of internationals, which is a point of huge uh, encouragement and pride for us. We have a number of Iranians, uh, Farsi speakers, who call this place home. It's a wonderful gift to have them in the family. We have a growing contingent of Indians as well. And uh, uh, also amazing to have those folks here, and many others as well. So it's not all about decline by uh, by any kind of measure. But I think what we are seeing decline on, and what this census, I think, picks up, is the decline in nominal faith. In my view, vital Christianity in this nation is in good health. It is not dying, but cultural Christianity is is declining, and very, very quickly. Now, we need to ask the question, why might this be? Why might it be that cultural Christianity, that kind of tick the box in the census Christianity, would be in such radical decline? Well, I would contend that that is because uh, we no longer live in a nation with a fundamentally Christian worldview, but in one that is increasingly secular. Now, secular, that's kind of one of those words that you hear talked about a lot. I certainly use that term a lot, and uh, I wouldn't blame you if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about when I do that. I'm going to describe what secularism is briefly, not in order to give a history lesson, not to overwhelm you, but because it is going to be directly related to this message and to this whole series. Now, the simplest way to describe secularism, I think, is secularism is the attempt to build a life and, in fact, a whole society. It's the project that in t- in attempts to build a, a life and a society on the idea that you can have something approximating the kingdom of God without the king. A secular age is one in which people long for the kind of human flourishing offered by the gospel of Jesus Christ but without any reference to the God of Jesus Christ. In fact, secularism creates an environment which is not just ambivalent about faith but increasingly hostile to all faith and I think particularly in this nation, Christian faith. Now, secular uh, Secular societies demand a kind of justice. They're actually very, very clear on the need for justice. They want human rights, peace, freedom, that's a word that's particularly valuable in secularism, and equality, equity. They want what is basically a modified biblical vision, but they don't want to have any restraint, no relationship to the king, no relationship to the one from whom this vision comes. Indeed, and you can see I'm warming to my theme at this point, any reference to any kind of boundary and restriction imposed by any external being or force is seen as repressive and oppressive. The truly secular person wants the freedom to do what they want, when they want, how they want. The temple then of the secular world is not the church, nor the mosque, or similar, but the shopping mall, the sports stadium, the gymnasium, and perhaps most of all, the Apple store. You laugh because you know it's true. Now another key feature of secular societies, I'm almost done here with the secular stuff. It's good though, isn't it? Is that our experience in the secular world, our experience of reality is shrunk into what a philosophical Charles Taylor speaks about as the imminent frame. The imminent frame is the, imminent means right here, right now. The imminent frame is the stuff that you can handle, that you can taste, that you can see with your eyes and that you can touch. It's what's right before you. The secular world denies the existence of the transcendent frame, the out there, the mystery, the wonder, altogether. There is, in fact, in the secular mind, no mystery, no reality beyond here and now. And we see this specifically as more and more of our reality becomes digital, defined by ones and zeros. The phone is the ultimate. Uh, mediator of secular reality, on the phone, uh, th- this small piece of glass and metal in front of us. Uh, this phone offers us it's a portal into secular and digital reality. It's amazing at providing information, but absolutely useless if what you're looking for in your life is wonder and transcendence. In fact, it squashes wonder. The more time you spend on that thing, the less time you will spend in the presence of God. I believe that. And you can argue with me about that after the sermon. Now, because this is the way that our whole world works and is structured, we buy into this almost accidentally because we shop at shops that assume it buy products that are designed around it, work in companies that speak to us about it, live under councils and governments who also assume it. And so often our prayer lives reflect this too. And all of this, and I'm now getting toward the end of the intro, all of this makes it really, really hard to be a Christian in a secular age. Really hard. This is the water against which you are swimming day in and day out. Not just hard to be a Christian, it's hard to be a theist. It's hard to be someone who believes that there is something more than what you can see. And you know this particularly if you're something like a teacher. Because our schools increasingly are radically secular places. Now, it's not the same kind of hard that it was to be a Christian in the first century. It's not the kind of, if I don't worship Caesar, I'm going to be taken into the Colosseum kind of hard. But it is really hard. The pressure to abandon faith is real and ever-present. You do feel like you're swimming against the tide. It's like living in a city where the lights, the street lights, are so bright, you can't see the stars beyond them. And thank you to Mark for passing on that image to me. But Here's the thing. The secular world is not the real world. There has to be more to life than secular imagination. And there is more to life. There must be mystery. And there is mystery. There is love. There is meaning. There is hope. But what we need as disciples of Jesus is some kind of tonic to cure the hangover some kind of way to enable us to perceive more than we're told there is. And such a tonic is given to us in the book of Revelation. Revelation? I hear you cry. My Bible stops at Jude. If I wanted dragons, I'd read Harry Potter, Pastor Johnny, Pastor Jonathan Williams Llewellyn Hughes. <laughs> Now, in Revelation, there is uh, an, a vision of reality that is much deeper than the one the secular world gives us. And so it's to Revelation that we are turning for these next umpteen weeks. Here's what we read in the book of Revelation. The revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The revelation, not the revelations, but the revelation. And in fact, actually, the letter begins with three Greek words next to each other, literally and simply saying, Revelation Jesus Christ. The word the or a revelation isn't even present. Revelation Jesus Christ. Revelation smacking you around the face if you're going to read this book So we're left to guess, is this our revelation? Is this the revelation? It is not clear. And secondly, we're not told whether this is our or the revelation of Jesus Christ. It could be that. Or from Jesus Christ. It is not made clear to us. Is Jesus the content of the revelation? Or is he the source of the revelation? I'm going for both, folks. Sing on the fence, as you would expect, on a Sunday morning. Either way, it's about Jesus Christ. And I think that's the main point. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because how many times have you heard somebody talk about Revelation and not talk at all about Jesus Christ? They'll talk to you about the dragon. They'll talk to you about the beast and tell you in great detail what these things mean. And they won't talk to you at all about Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. This is revelation and what that means quite simply is that what we've been given is a vision from beyond as a picture, an image, an an intervention so to speak from beyond our world that penetrates the kind of uh, metal casing of this secular world and Pokes holes in it so that we might begin to imagine something beyond it. Something transcendent living outside of it. We've been given in this book a new way to see. And from that new way to see comes a new way to be. That's what this book is all about. It's a manual for radical discipleship in this age. And in fact, the word revelation is actually Uh, In Greek, the word is apocalypsis. And now some of you are getting particularly excited. Apocalypse, you hear. Yes, it's the word from which we get the apocalypse. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking some end-of-the-world scenario. Perhaps you can imagine uh, uh, riding on a meteor with Stephen Tyler singing, I don't want to miss a thing, from uh, the book, uh, (laughs) not the book, the film Armageddon. Maybe that's what's in your mind, I don't know. Perhaps you're imagining here a superheated planet, or a meteor strike, or even worse, the left-behind films. But the word apocalypse doesn't refer to disaster in the way that we use it today. Instead, apocalypse in this sense means unveiling, revealing, disclosure, it's when something that has been hidden is made obvious. It's to do with the lifting of a cover and the pulling back of a curtain. Apocalypse is what happens to help us to see things from God's point of view. It's when the stars begin to shine so brightly that you can't even see the streetlights right in front of you. Here's what Darrell Johnson says. The fundamental conviction of apocalyptic literature is that things are not as they seem. There is more to reality than meets the unaided eyes or ears. There is more to the present historical moment than we can deduce. And apocalyptic writing seeks to unveil that unseen reality of the present. To pull back the curtain on the present so that we see what is really going on. That's why one of the repeated commands in Revelation, we're going to see this again and again, is look. Look! Behold! You've not been looking. Look! See what really is. So the foundational idea behind Revelation is that there's more to reality than meets the eye. And so it's a good thing to be reading as we consider the world in which we live. This book is about giving disciples of Jesus fresh perspective, fresh vision, a new way of seeing, an alternate way of reading reality. This book will help us understand the pressures and tensions of modern life differently. So it's apocalyptic. That's the first thing that revelation is. It's about seeing again. Secondly, this book is prophecy. It says this. uh, This revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, To show his servants what must soon take place. It's revelation of or from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Five times throughout this letter, uh, this book, this letter is described as prophecy. We see this actually in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. This is prophecy. Now, here again, we need to be careful, like we were with the word apocalypse, because prophecy is also something that we have particular views on. We understand often prophecy to be speaking about long-term prediction, about telling the future, and certainly revelation has been used historically to, uh, to, to, to stand for something which is describing the long-term future, perhaps the end of the world, or something similar. Now, biblical prophecy does often contain some kind of predictive element, but that is not what biblical prophecy primarily is trying to do. Biblical prophecy doesn't look to say, what is coming, but thus says the Lord. It's forthtelling, not foretelling. You might say that prophecy is much more about declaring what is rather than predicting what will be. And this means that we should expect revelation to be as much about declaring and unveiling things as they really were then for the people who received this letter first and foremost, rather than speaking into this long-term future. But because this is a message for them, we should also expect to hear and to understand that this is a message for us too. After all, the letters which form, uh, the seven letters to the seven churches which form the early part of the book, remind us, Oh, they say, uh, come and hear, come and see what the Spirit says to the churches. And so that's our third point. Secondly, we see that this is a prophecy, firstly, apocalypse, secondly, prophecy, thirdly, we find that this is a letter If we're going to understand Revelation, we need to understand it as letter. This is what we read, verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and so forth. Now, those of you who've read other New Testament letters, you understand, you recognize this form. Very much like one of the letters that Paul would write to one of the churches, say Corinth or Rome or some other place. This is first century letters. This is a formal style that John is picking up here. In fact, this is a circular letter, intended, as we see, addressed to the seven churches in the province of Asia. It's a circular letter, a series of churches, to seven churches who all would be expected to read the other churches' letters. This is not kind of some generalized apocalyptic literature, not some generalized prophecy, but it is specifically written to a group of people in a specific time and place, facing a specific set of challenges. And the fact that it's a letter means John. Before he is uh, the poet and the prophet, which he is, he's also a pastor. And he's writing this letter with a pastor's heart, caring deeply about a group of churches who he's connected to, but who, who he is physically separate from. And we'll learn more about that next week and what it means that he would be on Patmos. Now I have some experience pastoring from a distance because I had to pastor not alone, but I had to pastor along with Amy and our team. You lot in the pandemic and being physically distant from those of you who were part of this church at that point was very, very difficult. Pastoring you through Zoom was Very difficult, not least because our dog kept interrupting every single special spiritual moment that we had. Those of you who remember Willow Willow the Worship Dog, you you remember those days. I I think back on those moments and every single sermon involved just a, a collapse into tears. And it wasn't even because the stuff we were talking about was particularly emotional. We were just on the edge all the time, on the edge of breakdown. And maybe you felt the same way too. Now John is pastoring his people from a distance here, but he has no Zoom, no WhatsApp, or nothing of the kind. So he writes this letter to them, and because it's for them, it is for them, but because it's for them, it is also for us. As I said, this prophetic apocalyptic letter says to the churches, let anyone who has ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Not just to those churches, but to these churches, to any church in history, and to us. And to the church in this city at this time, also. Because it's for them, it's also for us. Seven churches, you know, you're going to find that symbols in Revelation have meaning. Seven is the biblical number of completion. This is a vision not just for seven specific churches, but for seven, the complete, the whole church. And as we get into those letters in coming weeks, we'll see that their significance is for us today. So I've told you a little bit about what this book is. I've said a little bit about the context in which we are as we receive this book. And finally, let me draw this together as we come into land and tell you why then we would be looking at a book like this. as a letter, apocalyptic letter, apocalyptic prophetic letter, dear friends. Impress your uh, friends with that this week. I, I or oh, don't. Well, it comes back why are we doing this? It comes back to the meaning of apocalyptic. What is this about? What is this letter really about? It's about seeing again. More than anything, what we're being confronted with in Revelation is a different vision, a bigger vision. And at times, honestly, the vision is is genuinely terrifying and that's when you do understand it because reality is it's big you know the, the secular vision is actually about numbing it's about numbing the biblical vision is sharper and it can cut you and if you're, if you're seeing as Jesus sees you will be cut you will be hurt You'll be broken by it because the evil is so much bigger than you know. It's so much more deep. Do you know that the world is so much more stained by evil than you know? And sometimes I just want to grab myself and others by the collar and just shake you. Say, gosh, don't you know how dark it is? But Jesus is so much bigger than the darkest of darkness. Jesus is so much bigger than any of us have any vision of. And he's the one. He's the one who comes to crush evil. This new vision is essential. We need a God-sized vision. The church needs to recapture the kind of vision that John had in Patmos. Because we've become so comfortably numb in this secular age. Listen to this. It turns out, Daryl Johnson again. Although the seven churches of Asia, to whom the revelation was first addressed, were facing various degrees, varying degrees of persecution, the greatest danger was not the persecution itself, and never really is, but rather spiritual complacency. That is, believers were uncritically benefiting From the seductive riches and might of Babylon, which at that moment in history was Rome. The last book of the Bible calls us to a radical discipleship, to all-out courageous loyalty to the Lamb in a world feverishly worshipping the beast. You know, we can be so comfortably numb, numbed. By consumer goods. Known by the stuff that we want. That offers us comfort. That offers us some kind of freedom. Known by a a vision of justice that doesn't even ever reference itself to Jesus. I feel that challenge every day. The desire to get progressively more and more comfortable when the biblical vision of discipleship is to lay aside comfort, to become more radical day by day, not more comfortable. If we're honest, we need to recognize that large parts of the church and even large parts of our own hearts are now secular too. Which is to say that it's easy for us in the church today, to lose sight of the king in all this talk of the kingdom. It is now quite possible to live a Christian life which functions a bit like a loveless marriage, going through the motions without any intimacy, any devotion, any sacrifice. One final quote. This time from Christoph Blumhart. No sermon is complete around these parts without some Blumhart. This time, writing in the 1800s. (laughs) Nietzsche said, God is dead. But we say, God is alive. Listen to this, though. We don't want a good life, either in this one or in the other one. All we want is to know God is alive. I don't want a minute of happiness. Until this earth knows God is alive, we must bow down under the living God and weep aloud for having killed him up to now. We are born for trouble, born for battle. Shame on us Christians who are always wanting to have it nice and soft with a bit of God in our lives. We've got to fight until we're dead or we aren't worth Christ's name. God calls out to us, share in my business. And we're fooling ourselves unless we do this. How have we killed God as the church by living such a comfortable and risk free Christianity? Are you ready? Are you ready to share in God's business? I don't know if I am, but by the Spirit of God, may he make us ready. May he take us to places we would never go, were it not for his gentle and kind leading. Out onto the edge, onto the precipice, with a bigger vision of Jesus than any of us had ever known before. May we no longer have anything in our lives but room for a king like Jesus and a kingdom like his. That is where, with God's grace and by His Spirit, we will go. Because there is no other call worthy of a church called by the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.